Hey, Malicious Life listeners, a quick note before we begin. Our second annual listeners survey is live on our website, malicious.life, and I'd be grateful if you take the time to answer a few quick questions about yourselves and the show. These surveys are very important to us. They help us understand what we're doing right and what needs to be improved, and they also help us bring new sponsors to the show without which malicious life would not exist. All answers are completely anonymous, of course, and those who take the survey will receive a special bonus episode, an interview I did with the one and only Woz, Steve Wozniak, the engineering wizard who created the first Apple computers. Find the link to the survey on malicious.life. Thank you for supporting Malicious Life. Hi, Amit. Hi, Ron. Hey, thank you for joining us. So please introduce yourself. My name is Amit Serper. I am the VP of Security Strategy and Principal Security Researcher at Cyber Reason. There's a good chance you're familiar with Amit Serper's name. He is a frequent guest on our show, but he's also famous in his own right. In 2017, after the infamous Russian malware NotPetya wreaked havoc in Ukraine, Amit found a bug which disabled it entirely. Before joining Cyberism, Amit served as senior security researcher at the office of the Prime Minister of Israel, where he took part in many top-secret offensive cyber operations, which he's going to tell us all about today. Nah, just kidding. And I always say there's two things. There's only two things that I know how to do. Uh, one is security. The other is music. One of them pays better than the other. Uh, and I am, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be uh, doing something for a living, which I really enjoy. Hi, and welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. Usually in Malicious Life, we bring you quote-unquote big stories about hacks to multinational organizations or major malware outbreaks. Today, however, we have a relatively small story, a minor hack of an unnamed organization which caused no particular damage as far as we can tell. You're probably wondering, why bother? Maybe Ran and Nate have run out of interesting ideas for new episodes. You know, they're really starting to phone it in these days, what with all those big bags of podcast money they've got rolling in. Do they even care anymore? Ron, dearest, could you pass me the escargo? Indubitably. Hey, Nate, wanna take a dip in our pool of liquid gold? Oh, how convivial! <laughs> Don't worry, listeners, we haven't ran out of ideas, and this free podcast isn't quite enough to buy that gold pool I've always wanted. Why the small story? Well, the real purpose of today's episode is to talk about the process of cybersecurity research. A deep dive into how cybersecurity research happens at the ground level. The good, the bad, the tools and the tasks involved in doing it. That is why we have Amit, a veteran researcher, with us today. 
Today's story begins without much fanfare, as many cybersecurity projects do. A client was conducting penetration testing on their IT infrastructure, and Amit decided to check up on it. Pretty routine stuff. We, uh, we have uh, a lot of customers that we are monitoring their uh, environments for them. One of those uh, environments that we were monitoring, uh, we knew that they had some sort of uh, penetration testing engagement. And this happens a lot for many reasons, uh, whether it's um, regulation, like a routine penetration test, um, or it's something that was um, ordered uh, especially to uh, test the defense systems, etc. So uh, we knew that this customer had a penetration testing engagement. Whenever there's a penetration testing engagement, it's a good chance for us to see if, um, if we're catching all of the new um, techniques. Um, so I went, I went over some detection data uh, from that environment just as a routine, uh, just as a routine check. And the things that I saw there kind of were not making sense. It did not appear to be like uh, penetration testing engagements because of the, 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 just the sheer weirdness of, of, of everything. What do you mean by weirdness? Uh, there was a tool that was uh, supposed to uh, check for some uh, web-related vulnerabilities and uh, SQL injections in a SQL database. But the tool that was running on one of the machines in the organization seemed to be connecting to some weird domains and exhibiting behavior, exhibiting a behavior of, um, of a rat, of a remote access Trojan, even though the tool itself was not a remote access Trojan. What raised Amit's suspicion was the fact that oftentimes a malware will try to connect to an external domain outside of the network it is in to get instructions from command and control servers operated by the hacker. I was actually sitting in my, in my, uh, in my office. That was back when we were... Um, uh, remember when we were allowed uh, to get out? <laughs> yeah, there was a period so, of time. I remember the blue yeah. skies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Rem- the kids don't believe remember, me anymore. <laughs> remember taking your wallet. Remember forgetting your keys. <laughs> um, so uh, I was I was sitting in my office and I and I was going all of the raw data that came out of our system uh, after this incident. I was like, wow, this is interesting. I wonder what this what this domain is. I wonder if there's any other malware associated with this domain. So I sort of had this uh, thread that I really, I, I wasn't obligated on pulling this thread because the, the customer, you know, they were fine with what we gave them, but I had this kind of hunch that, well, it's a, it's a, it's a hacked hacking tool. I wonder if there is any more of them. Amit had found the software conducting the penetration tests for his client, but it certainly didn't appear to be acting like an ordinary security tool. It was communicating with domains that didn't appear to be owned by either the company itself or the vendor they hired to do the pen testing for them. So at that phase, I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really sure what, what was going on. I just saw a bunch of um, weird connections and, and behaviors. And I started pulling on this thread by um, doing what's called uh, passive DNS research or queries. DNS, or Domain Name System, is a key part of the internet. 
Its job is to translate the human-readable domain names we use to access websites, such as malicious.life, for example, into numeric IP addresses, such as 104.26.4.163, which is Malicious Life's address. This translating is why some people call DNS the phone book of the Internet. By design, DNS records, the entries that specify which domain name is mapped to what IP address, are ephemeral. Once a DNS record is modified, the old record is lost forever. This makes it hard for security researchers to track the history of a particular domain name. Passive DNS was invented in 2004 to address that difficulty. It's basically a huge database that keeps a detailed history of DNS records. Using passive DNS, I can tell, for example, that the malicious.life domain was once upon a time associated with an IP address belonging to godaddy.com, and then, at a later date, changed to an address associated with Cloudflare. Why track the history of domain names in the first place? Well, say you have an IP address of a server which is known to host malicious software. Using passive DNS, we can find all the domain names that were associated with that malicious server in the past, and so track down the history and evolution of malicious campaigns. The malware that Amit uncovered in his client's network was communicating with two different domains. The first was apparently a legitimate and innocent-looking website belonging to an office supply manufacturer in India. It appeared to be a hacked WordPress site that was being used as a command and control server, a fairly common occurrence and not so useful for a researcher trying to hunt down an attacker. The second domain, however, was much more interesting. Its name was capeturk.com, and querying the passive DNS database revealed an important clue. The history of the domains connecting to the Pentest tool suggested that they did not belong to a security company at all. Then I started looking at the history of that domain, and I started looking at, at what it was, and um, it appeared to be that up to a certain date, this website was actually a website in Turkish, in the Turkish language, mm. that uh, the website was about um, uh, the Minecraft uh, computer game. So it was a, a Turkish-speaking website about Minecraft. Uh, and then the domain expired, and uh, a, about a day after it was expired, it was registered by a Vietnamese individual. This Vietnamese individual, it seems, created several new subdomains. With the first domain, with, with Cape Turk, what was interesting is that it had a bunch of subdomains. So it had uh, subdomains like bank.capeturk.com, blog.capeturk.com, checkout.capeturk.com, and so on and so forth. And, and every one of these subdomains was also serving malware. So what I did is I took all of those domains and I started resolving their IPs and I started looking at, at the history of those IP addresses and domains and see what they were associated with. What I ended up having 
was uh, these three domains, and uh, I started cross-correlating them in, in, in VirusTotal. VirusTotal is another important tool in a researcher's toolbox. VirusTotal is a company that was acquired by Google a few years ago, and they are basically, um, think of them as, as this storage unit full of files. These files could be malware, they could be legitimate files, uh, they're not infected with anything, what's called goodware. It's just a giant database of files. These files are scanned uh, by over uh, 30-something antivirus engines. So when you upload, when you go to virustotal.com and you upload a file there, it's immediately scanned by uh, 30-something different um, antivirus products. And you can see the result of each one of those scans by these uh, antiviruses. What's now, the point of that scan? Uh, for the average Joe, let's say that someone emailed you a file. And you don't know if this file is uh, safe to run or not. And you don't necessarily trust your uh, antivirus or you don't have an antivirus. So you'd go to virustotal.com and you would upload that file there. And within a matter of seconds, you'd be able to uh, know if this, uh, if this file is malicious or not, according to the verdict of 30-something, if not more by now, um, antivirus engines. And what about you as a researcher? What do you use VirusTotal for? If you are a researcher and you pay uh, VirusTotal um, a substantial amount of money, <laughs> you get access to pretty much every single file that was ever uploaded to VirusTotal. And you also gain access to um, a bunch of their, of their tools that are always improving that allows you to run massive and very uh, intricate queries across all of the files uh, that's in their databases. And these are really um, unimaginable amounts of data. VirusTotal, for cybersecurity researchers, is like the background check tool police use when they pull you over on the road and ask for your driver's license. The problem is that VirusTotal has, as Amit put it, unimaginable amounts of data roughly 2.4 billion files, according to VirusTotal itself. Finding a specific malware sample in this enormous haystack is not an easy task, to say the least. This is where yet another important tool in the researcher's arsenal comes into play, Yara. Yara is a language that is used to describe and classify malware. Each Yara entry holds the unique information that is used to identify a malware sample, such as strings or binary patterns. Yara is this sort of like a, a think of it like almost a language in which you can craft queries about data that's inside of files. So you could craft a query to VirusTotal which can say, uh, give me all, show me all of the files that um, are, for example, um, Windows executables um, that have these particular strings in them or files that have row of bits in them. And you can basically create very, very elaborate queries. By the way, if you're trying to figure out what the acronym YARA stands for, 
Don't strain yourself too much. According to Victor Alvarez, its creator, Yara, stands for yet another ridiculous acronym, or alternatively, Yara, another recursive acronym. Using Yara queries, Amit ran the Cape Turk domains through VirusTotal to see if they had any priors. I saw three connections to uh, three different domains, and I started looking at those domains in all of our uh, threat intelligence resources. And then I saw that uh, one of those domains, one of those domains uh, have like uh, over a thousand uh, malicious file hashes associated with it on virus total. Over 1,000 malicious hashes. That's a lot of viruses, almost too much. One hacker with over 1,000 viruses would be prolific, ridiculous. You'd be looking at the Stephen King of hackers. Obviously, there had to be some sort of automation involved. The, the thing that, that was impressive, in, uh, to me at least, in this campaign was just the sheer amount of these samples uploaded. Uh, every day, there were like more and more samples, like sometimes dozens of samples uploaded every day, fresh samples of the same tools, that if, as if there was like some sort of an automated uh, process that was just generating them and uploading them uh, uh, to various websites. This was the thing that impressed me. The question is then, who could have possibly created so many malicious programs and what would have even been the point? So the, the way that uh, a lot of the um, antivirus or security products work is that they are using all sorts of, uh, of, of hashing tricks uh, to create a unique identifier of a file. So you basically, what it, what it means is you take all of the data that's inside the file and you basically run some sort of a mathematical equation on the collection of bits inside the file. And depending on which equation you use, which algorithm you use, uh, you end up with what's called a hash, which is a series. It's basically a string, a series of numbers and letters. And, they, uh, and that series of numbers and letters are a unique identifier to that file. If you will change even one single bit in that file and you'll run the hashing algorithm on the file again, you will get a completely different identifier. So this is how uh, we as, as, as security researchers or malware analysts or um, security vendors, this is how we basically can tell the difference between files. The file names or their file extensions or the file types usually don't mean a lot to us because what, we, what we're looking for is the uniqueness of a file. This is how we identify it. So the process of, of compiling uh, different samples every day, I assume that they were meant uh, to basically keep uh, security vendors from uh, identifying and, and blocking these samples because instead of uh, going over uh, a single file that will always have the same hash, the same hash value, they would generate dozens of these files every day. And by the time that these files will be blacklisted in all sorts of um, uh, antivirus engines, it will already be the next day and there will be like dozens of new files. 
So the Cape Turk hacker was automatically generating slightly altered versions of the same malware so that each one would look like different programs to an antivirus program. It's one big game of cat and mouse. So uh, what I did is I took all of those uh, 100 and something files that I originally found and I compared between them. I looked only at the things that they have in common. So I discarded all of the differences and I was left with a bunch of bits that they were all sharing. And then I built a Yara query that iterated over um, the data that's in VirusTotal and gave me all of the files that, that had those similarities. And then I started downloading a few of those samples and I looked at them and I executed them in a control environment. And I actually saw that they were exhibiting the same behavior that this uh, penetration testing tool was exhibiting. It basically looked like a remote access Trojan that's called NJRAT. NJRAT isn't a particularly unique Trojan. It spreads by phishing attachments or infected flash drives, sets up a web shell on the host computer, and receives instructions from a remote hacker. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, NJRAT has, uh, has been around for, for a few years now. It's... Um, it's a rat that was being used mostly in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of its operators were um, from Arab-speaking countries. Uh, that's where it originated from, at least. This is what we think. Uh, but now a lot, of, uh, a lot of hackers out there are, are using uh, this fairly prevalent uh, rat. NJRAT by itself wasn't a very interesting malware. What was interesting were the files that the malware was hiding in. So what, what we did was basically from one, one file hash and one domain that we've had, we were able to extrapolate more domains from it, over 1,000 samples, and all of them were hacking tools. Not all of them, but most of them were, um, were hacking tools that were laced with NJRAT. Hacking tools like the ones used by the company who was hired to do the pen testing for Amit's client. I spent a few hours in, in trying to track where were these files downloaded. And uh, I ended up finding uh, a blog that's called ShareTools99. And I, I went into that blog and, and this blog had a, like a whole bunch of, uh, of hacking tools, all sorts of tools just like this SQLI injector dumper thing. And all of them, every single tool that I downloaded from, from there. And it doesn't matter which tool it was, whether it was a, a database uh, hacking tool, whatever it was, it was all uh, infected with the same variant of NJRAT connecting the same servers. So pretty much every single file that this uh, ShareTools99 blog uh, was sharing was infected with the same variant of NJRAT that was connecting to the same servers. Now, we can finally understand what this whole campaign is about. Why would somebody have an interest in lacing penetration tools with, uh, you know, rat with malware? What's what's the, the 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 gain here? So it's pretty great. Think of it. I mean, if 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 you're someone that doesn't really understand how um, the dynamic the dynamics of hacking uh, work, and you're what's called a script kitty. And all you want to do is get some tools and, and hack some places. Then you go on Google 
and you just, you know, you start Googling, where can I download this? How do I get an NJRAD builder or how do I get these tools? You would often get to uh, websites that offer you some sort of a tutorial or they would offer you um, access to a, a large collection of these tools. It's basically like, hey, here's a bunch of uh, free tools for you to use to hack to other places. And then whoever put these tools online gets immediate access to wherever those uh, script kitties, if you will, wherever they are hacking. In summary, experienced hackers are putting hacking tools online for script kitties to use. These tools are useful for people who aren't good enough to create their own malware, but as they say, nothing in life is free. In downloading these tools, the script kitties are also unwittingly infecting their own computers. This is hackers hacking hackers. No honor among thieves. It's sort of like uh, a waiting game. You are uh, you're you're putting the tools out there, and you're waiting for them to uh, phone back home, and then you have access to uh, wherever these hackers have access to. Smart. You're saying that it is a common practice of lacing these kind of tools with uh, malware. It's not a new thing. This this technique has been is is probably as old as the internet itself. Now that we finally understand the hacker's motives, the only thing left for Amit is to try to uncover the hacker's real identity. As is often the case in cyber research, this is the hardest part of the investigation. When I was running a lot of these um, uh, uh, hacked hacking tools in a controlled environment, I saw that a lot of them say hacked by RTN. And then I started looking uh, for information about who is RTN, uh, because RTN is a fairly common three-letter acronym for lots of companies and, and a bunch of things. But I ended up getting into a web forum that was called RTN, Reversing the Noobs, which was uh, a hacking forum, a forum um, that deals with hacking and hacking tools. Um, I tried to um, uh, sign up to this forum because I wanted to see what's in there, because... Uh, you can't get access unless you have a user there. But whenever I tried to sign up, I would get an error. Uh, I think that something was wrong with their forum at the time. And uh, I, I was never able to actually uh, uh, sign up uh, to their forum. So I honestly don't know if this is someone from this forum who takes all of these tools and laces them with, with uh, NJRAT, or this is something uh, unrelated. So... No luck there. Amit's final clue were the names and addresses that were used when the Cape Turk domain was re-registered in June 2018. It's a very, very long shot, since these details can be easily faked, but that's all that he had at this point. Uh, yeah, his name... Uh, I, can, I can pull it up, it'll take me a second. Um, his name is listed there, let's see. Which which is also strange because usually uh, these domains are registered with some sort of a privacy protection, so you won't see the name. Uh, but the name is Nguyen uh, Kong. It's a Vietnamese name, and there's even an address here. Uh, 12 Kong in the city of Tan Wan. I don't know even if I'm... Uh, oh, it's in Hanoi. Uh, yeah, so it's in, the, in, a, in a district called... Uh, Tan Wan in Hanoi, in Vietnam. 
This was the point in the interview where I, a seasoned internet user myself, had a brilliant idea, if I may say so myself. Did you try looking in uh, Google Maps to see that address? Hmm. <laughs> I don't uh, actually, I did not, but <laughs> it could be let's do it right now. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced many of us to work from our homes, and many, if not most, organizations were caught off guard by this rapid expansion of the security perimeter. CyberReason recently published a free guide to maintaining secure business continuity during COVID-19 for security people, with insights and advice from CDO Jonathan Stream Amit, CSO Sam Curry, VP of Security Strategy Amit Serper, and many others. Find the guide at malicious.life slash remote work. That's malicious.life slash remote work. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's no street view there. I mean, the, the address exists. Oh, there is street view. Hold on. Yeah, it looks like, uh, wow, it actually looks like Allenby Street in Tel Aviv. Amazing. <laughs> um, so it's my, kind of uh, a commercial wow. street? Yeah, so this is, this is the building I sent you, and, and this is the street. Yeah, actually. Tell me, tell me <laughs> it doesn't look like Allenby Street. It could have been in Tel Aviv for like a... Could yeah, tell. it looks exactly like Allenby Street. And I don't uh, see yeah, so any it, it computer looks... shop specifically. I see like lots of bikes, which is pretty common, I guess, in Southeast Asia. But no, yeah. not something that says this is a computer shop of some sort. Ah, hmm. there's a Western Union upstairs. Hmm. You can see. But uh, these kinds of names or details, sorry, are usually, I'm guessing, made up, right? Well, yeah, but it's 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 hard to know because uh, again, without without really knowing what's going on there, uh, you can't really guess because this individual could have genuinely acquired this domain and then someone else hacked this individual. So we don't have any evidence that like tie this individual directly to this malware attack other than the fact that some of the samples were uploaded to VirusTotal from Vietnam. And that this person's name is on the domain, but other than that, there is nothing that that nothing more that that ties this whole thing to this individual's name. Okay, maybe my idea wasn't that brilliant after all. Ultimately, as is usually the case in cyber research, Amit wasn't able to uncover the hacker's real identity. The best he can hope for at this point is that someday in the future, the Cape Turk hacker will make the fatal mistake that will expose his true identity to the world. And when that day comes, Amit's research will help future researchers connect all the dots. He published his findings about Cape Turk and the infected pen test tool online last month in a blog post. Uh, we add um, the IOCs, which stand for Indicators of Compromise, to this blog. So this, uh, the IOCs in this case are the uh, domain names, IP addresses, uh, file hashes. Um, so we released um, a PDF with, with hundreds of file hashes, hoping that these will propagate 
across the security community into threat intelligence data sources. And eventually we would be able to uh, uh, help contain this attack that way. So it propagates to all sorts of uh, uh, threat intelligence exchanges. Uh, it propagates to antivirus companies. It propagates to firewall companies, to VirusTotal. And that way you can help uh, blacklist and not stop it completely, but sort of contain it. So there's the client and there's the attacker. And there's one last character in this play to whom we didn't pay too much attention so far. The penetration testing company, the ones who apparently were caught red-handed using laced hacking tools they probably downloaded from some blog on the internet. Not very professional, to say the least. I have a feeling that it might have been a bit embarrassing for these guys. I mean, there were... It seems as if they were using tools which were kind of lifted off the internet? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would be... Um, if it was me dealing with a company like that, I would be uh, very... Uh, uh, I want to say uh, 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 very upset. <laughs> Because part of, the, part of the thing, like when you are hiring uh, uh, a company to do some penetration testing or red teaming for you, In, in many cases, a lot of companies are doing it just uh, for the regulation, just to get that check marked. And, and they often don't have a lot of, uh, they don't have quite a, a deep enough of a, of a scope in those engagements. So they would just take all the right boxes and carry on. So this is, uh, uh, I would be embarrassed for myself, embarrassed for that penetration company, and also furious with them. I'm guessing you're probably dying to know who these guys are, the quote-unquote security professionals who were so easily hacked like the script kiddies they actually are. Well, I asked, but Amit wasn't willing to reveal their name. He knows, the client knows, and that's probably enough. You see, there might not be honor among thieves, but there's still some honor between security professionals. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. No Honor Among Thieves, Amit Serpa's research into the penetration testing, NJ Rat and Hackers Hacking Hackers is available online. For more detail than we could cover in this episode, visit cyberreason.com slash blog. I have an important follow-up for our previous episode, which was about passwords and their inherent problems. After the episode was published, I got this response from a listener called Chaz, who wrote, quote, Many thanks to Ran and the Malicious Life team for an excellent podcast show. I look forward to each and every informative episode. With reference to your recent podcast on passwords and potential replacements, are you aware of the extensive work of Steve Gibson, Security Now podcaster, and his volunteers on SQRL, Squirrel, Secure, Quick, Reliable Logging? Their work is now complete and available for a range of operating systems, apps, and plugins, but still requires adoption from the industry and associated websites. Keep up the great work. Regards, Chaz. End quote. 
Ron Harris wrote a comment in a similar vein. Quote, thanks for your podcast. As a retired tech consultant, I have enjoyed your sense of humor and podcast material. Steve Gibson is all about security. He spent years developing Squirrel as a gift to the security world. He needs to be recognized. End quote. And I also received similar comments from William Kilgore and Zev Eisenberg, who all wanted to hear more about Squirrel. So right off the bat, I need to apologize. As a longtime fan of Security Now, Steve Gibson's podcast, I obviously knew about Squirrel, but it slipped my mind that I forgot to include it in the previous episode. So S-Q-R-L, Squirrel, what's it about? Squirrel is a brilliant authentication system that Gibson created to address many of the problems we have with passwords. On the practical side, you browse to a website, and if the site supports Squirrel, it displays a QR code. You scan the code with your smartphone, and you're logged in. Sounds simple, right? Of course, the real innovation here isn't the QR code, but what goes on behind the scenes during the authentication process. That QR code is actually a URL that contains the website's domain name and a blob of random information called a nonce. A nonce is something that is used only once, and that blob of random information is indeed sent to the user only once and never again to any user. The Squirrel client, which is installed in the user's phone in this example, grabs that blob and uses it to create a pair of public and private keys. The private key, also called master key, never leaves the client. The client uses this private key to encrypt the blob, and the encrypted blob is then sent back to the server together with a public key. The server decrypts the blog with the public key. Since the blob holds a nonce that was sent to me, the user, and only to me, this affirms the fact that the public key is associated with me, the user, with my identity and no one else's. Gibson's Squirrel system solves many of the issues we described in the previous episode. For example, every private and public key pair is unique to a particular website or service you log into, which means that if the user's public key was compromised for some reason, there's no harm done. In fact, public keys, by definition, are meant to be public. Only the private key needs to be kept secret, and it never ever leaves the user's client. There's also no way to link the identity of a user across several websites based on that public key. Finally, it's an open and free system that anyone can implement. All in all, a brilliant idea. Let's hope it gains traction in the coming years. Thanks, Chaz, Ron, and the rest of the listeners who reminded me about Squirrel. Also following the previous episode, we asked you on Twitter for tips on choosing good passwords. We got some cool ideas, like this one from user LilYTQ, who wrote, quote, First letters of a long poem in a language that's not English, including punctuation, end quote. Interesting idea. I might use it myself. 
V to the K wrote, quote, I let my password manager generate a long 20 plus character password mixed with upper and lower cases as well as numbers and special characters. I honestly don't know any of my passwords outside of my password manager. End quote. And finally, user random internet man, a perfectly descriptive username, if I might say so, suggested, quote, Store passwords for your most sensitive accounts in your head only, but let your password manager take care of the rest. End quote. That's it. As always, you can find all of our previous episodes and full transcripts on our website, malicious.life. Follow at maliciouslife on Twitter for updates on new episodes, polls, and interesting discussions. And you can also follow me at at ranlevi, R-A-N-L-E-V-I. My email is ran at ranlevy.com. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh